All right, you may be seated. Kids may now be dismissed to Children's Church. I know my daughter in particular is very excited about that. So, all you kiddos to the back. Very good. All right, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is where we'll be. We began last week in Psalm 119 in a series entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Beautiful God. And so we'll be continuing along in that series uh, this evening. Uh, The name Joshua Harris will probably be familiar to a number of you. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the name Joshua Harris. Okay, a few of you. Uh, Some of you are probably too young uh, to be familiar with the influence of his most famous book, which came out in the mid-90s, and that book was called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. That book was released in 1997, so I am fully aware that that is before some of you were born. Uh, Moving on, that book was one of the most impactful books in the last 30 years in the evangelical world. That book sold over a million copies, and with that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, Joshua Harris almost single-handedly shaped the purity movement of the mid-90s and early 2000s. He advocated a courtship over dating. From 2004 to 2015, Joshua Harris was the pastor of a large megachurch. He organized a number of conferences. He was a frequent speaker and influencer. In 2015, four years ago, he resigned from his church in order to, of all things, attend seminary. He said at the time that he did things backwards and wanted to rectify that. But a year later, in 2016, he made headlines by essentially retracting the message of his book. He apologized to all of the people that had expressed that his book had hurt them. He apologized to those who followed the purity movement. He said it placed too much fear on pressure, uh, too much emphasis, I'm sorry, on fear and pressure. But this summer, Harris made headlines yet again with a post on Instagram announcing that he and his wife were divorcing. Much to the shock of many, uh, he was now kissing marriage goodbye. Shortly after that post came another shocker. Harris said this on Instagram, I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. The biblical phrase is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Many people tell me there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. If his first announcement about his divorce was shocking, his follow-up was ten times more so. Now, Joshua Harris was kissing Christianity goodbye. He went from being the symbol of an evangelical generation to walking away from the faith entirely. Last month, another deconversion story splashed across our screens. This time it came from a guy named Marty Sampson. 
Now, you might not recognize right away the name Marty Sampson, but we just sang two of the songs that he wrote. Marty Sampson, beginning in the early 90s, was one of the original and longest-standing worship leaders for Hillsong. We've probably all sang his songs without realizing it. Songs like, There is Nothing Like, All I Need Is You, Oh Praise the Names, songs that we just sang. In an Instagram announcement of his own, he said this at the beginning of this month. I'm sorry, last month. It's now September, isn't it? Wow. Happy September once, everyone. Uh, This is what Samson said. Time for some real talk. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. Like, what bothers me now is nothing. I'm so happy now, so at peace with the world, it's crazy. This is a soapbox moment, so here I go. How many preachers fall? Many, but no one talks about it. How many miracles happen? Not many, but no one talks about it. Why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about it. How can God be love, yet send billions of people to a place all because they don't believe? No one talks about it. Christians can be the most judgmental people on the planet. They also can be some of the most beautiful and loving people. But it's not for me. I'm not in anymore. I want the genuine truth, not just the I believe it kind of truth. Science keeps piercing the truth of every religion. Lots of things help people change their lives, not just one version of God. I've got so much more to say, but for me, I'm keeping it real. Unfollow if you want. I've never been about living my life for others. All I know is what's true to me right now. And Christianity just seems to me like another religion at this point. I could go on, but I won't. Love and forgive, absolutely. Be kind, absolutely. Be generous and do good to others, absolutely. Some things are good no matter what you believe. Let the rain fall and the sun will come up tomorrow. Now a few days after this announcement, Samson clarified that he hadn't turned his back completely on faith, just that it was on incredibly shaky ground. The same cannot be said for another prominent worship leader, Michael Gunger, whose most famous song and one of my personal favorites is the song, Beautiful Things. Several years ago, his music began to reflect that he was slowly deconstructing. Three years ago, while his infant child was in the hospital, he declared that he no longer believed in God and announced that he is now an atheist. Add to this list Frank Schaeffer, the son of renowned philosopher and apologist Francis Schaeffer, Rob Bell, a megachurch pastor, Influential blogger and author Jen Hatmaker, on and on and on the list goes. Public leaders who are falling away from the faith and then publicly and boldly sharing their extimonies. In addition to those who have fallen away completely are the multitudes of people who, though they haven't fallen away from the faith, they've softened their stances on biblical teaching in order to be accepted or to be politically correct. In the name of love or keeping up with the times, they have tempered or or at times completely erased a number of biblical doctrines and apologized for being so exclusive. What on earth is going on? I would submit to you that the reason for this is that many, if not most, 
Christians are no longer anchored to the Word of God as we should be. We are no longer tethered to the beautiful Word as we ought. For the majority of people who attend church on Sundays, their only or their main exposure to the Bible is when they're inside the four walls of the church. A survey in 2012 revealed that only 19% of regular church-going Protestants say that they read the Bible every day. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, because most of us might say, well, I miss days all the time, myself included. Could I even be counted in that percentage? That's simply referring to people who are making an effort to be in the scriptures every day. Only 19% of Protestant churchgoers. The results of a statistic like that are, are disastrous. When the Bible is no longer our source of wisdom and influence and spiritual sustenance, we slowly slide further and further away until our faith is no longer even recognizable. I'd like to read to you here uh, a Facebook post that was written um, a couple of weeks ago by a man named John Cooper. John Cooper is the lead singer of a band called Skillet. Any Skillet fans in the house? All right, we've got a major Skillet fan there. Very good. Um, A few weeks ago, he wrote a response to the events Uh, the headlines about Joshua Harris and Marty Sampson. And and I want you to see, especially in the conclusion of his post, that he and I share the same concern about our relationship to the Word of God. This is what he says. He says, okay, I'm saying it, because it's too important not to. What is happening in Christianity? More and more of our outspoken leaders or influencers who were once the faces of the faith are falling away. And at the same time, they're being very bold about it. Shockingly, they want to still influence others. For what purpose? As they announce they're leaving the faith. I'll state my conclusion, then I'll state some rebuttals to statements I've heard by some of them. Firstly, I never judge anyone outside my faith, even if they hate religion or Christianity. That's not my place. I have many friends who disagree with my religion. That's 100% fine with me. However... When it comes to people within my faith, there must be a measure of loyalty and friendship and accountability to each other and to the Word of God. My conclusion for the church, all of us Christians, we must stop making worship leaders and thought leaders or influencers or cool people or relevant people the most influential in Christendom. And yes, he says, that includes me. I've been saying for 20 years and seem probably quite judgmental to some of my peers that we're in a dangerous place when the church is looking to 20-year-old worship singers as our source of truth. We now have a church culture that learns who God is from singing modern praise songs rather from the teachings of the Word. I'm not being rude to my worship leader friends, many who would agree with me in saying that singers and musicians are good at communicating emotion and feeling. We create a moment and a vehicle for God to speak. However, singers are not always the best people to write solid biblical truth and doctrine. Sometimes we're too young, too ignorant of scripture, too unaware, or too unconcerned about the purity of scripture and the holiness of the God that we're singing to. Have you ever considered, he says, the disrespect of singing songs to God that are untrue of His character. 
I have a few specific thoughts and rebuttals to statements made by recently disavowed church influencers. First of all, I'm stunned that seemingly most important thing for these leaders who have lost their faith is to make such a bold new stance, basically saying, I've been living and preaching boldly something for 20 years, led generations of people with my teachings, now I no longer believe it, therefore... I'm going to boldly and loudly people tell people that I was wrong while I boldly and loudly lead people into my next truth. I'm perplexed why they aren't embarrassed, humbled, ashamed, fearful, confused. Why be so eager to continue leading people when you clearly don't know where you are headed? My second thought is this. Why do people act like being real covers over a multitude of sins? As if someone is courageous simply for sharing virally every thought or dark place. That's not courageous it's cavalier. Have they considered the ramifications? As if they are the harbingers of truth saying, I used to think one way and practice it and preach it, but now I've learned all the new truth and will start practicing and preaching it. So the influencers become the voice for truth in whatever stage of life and whatever evolution takes place in their thinking. Thirdly, there's a common thread running through these leaders and influencers that basically says, no one else is talking about the real stuff. This is just flatly false. I just read today a renowned worship leader's statement, Marty Sampson, is who he's referring to. How could a God of love send people to hell? No one talks about it. As if he is the first person to ask this? Brother, you are not that unique. The church has wrestled with this for 1,500 years. Literally everybody talks about it. Children talk about it in Sunday school. There's like a billion books written on that topic. Just because you don't get the answer you want doesn't mean that we're unwilling to wrestle with it. We wrestle with Scripture until we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And lastly, most shocking in my opinion, as these influencers disavow their faith, they always end their statements with their new insight or new truth, which is basically a regurgitation of Jesus' words. It's truly bizarre and ironic. They'll say, I'm disavowing my faith, but remember... Love people, be generous, forgive others. Um, why? That is not human nature. No child is ever born and says, I just want to love others before loving myself. I want to turn the other cheek. I want to give my money away to others in need. Those are biblical principles taught by a prophet, priest, and king of kings who wants us to live by a higher standard, which is not an earthly standard, but rather the kingdom of God's standard. Therefore, if Jesus is not the truth and if the word of God is not absolute, then by preaching Jesus' teachings, you are endorsing the words of a madman. A lunatic who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also said he was alive before Abraham, and to see him was to see God because he was one with God. So why then would a disavowed Christian leader promote that generosity is good? How would you know what is good without Christ's teaching? And will your ideas of what is good be different from year to year based on your experience, culture trends, popular opinion, etc.? And furthermore, will you continue year by year to lead others into your idea of goodness, even though it is not absolute? I'm amazed, he says, that so many Christians want the benefits of the kingdom of God with the caveat that they themselves will be king. It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of the word and to value the teaching of the word. We need to value truth over feeling, truth over emotion. And what we're now seeing is the result of a church raising up influencers who do not supremely value truth, 
who have led a generation who also do not believe in the supremacy of truth. And now those disavowed leaders are proudly still leading and influencing boldly away from the truth. Is it any wonder that some of our disavowed Christian leaders are letting go of the absolute truth of the Bible and subsequently their lives are falling apart? Further and further they are sinking into the sea, all the while shouting, Now I've found the truth! Follow me! Brothers and sisters in the faith all around the world, pastors, teachers, worship leaders, influencers, I implore you, Please, please, in your search for relevancy for the gospel, let us not find creative ways to shape God's word into the image of our culture by stifling inconvenient truths. But rather, let us hold even tighter to the anchor of the word of God, for he changes not. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Isaiah 40, verse 8. What I'd like to show you today from Psalm 119 is how vitally important the Bible is, but also why and how we should anchor ourselves to it. So, hopefully you are already in Psalm chapter 119. If you do not have a Bible, we have quite a few on the table in the back, or as most of you are already navigating there on your devices. Psalm 119, we'll be looking at verses 9 through 24. And the words will be behind me on the screen as well. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. So, Last week, we started this series, Sinners in the Hands of a Beautiful God. We're studying our way through Psalm 119. And last week, we talked about how it is God's beauty, not His wrath, that is what most essentially defines Him. That our posture toward God is not one of terror, but rather one of of captivation. That we're captivated by the beauty of God, and that is what leads us to be changed, that we do not follow God out of obligation, we follow God out of delight. If you missed that message, I encourage you to go and listen to that on the podcast because it kind of frames the series together. But today, just like we looked at the character of God being beautiful last week, I want to take the same approach to looking at the Bible 
And I want us to see that the Bible is beautiful because it reflects the beauty of God. You may know that Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It is comprised of 22 sections of 8 verses in each section. Interestingly, this uh, psalm is set up as an acrostic. It corresponds to the Hebrew alphabet. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each one of these sections begins with one of those letters. In the original language, each one of the verses in those sections also begins with the corresponding letter. I mentioned last week that although we do not know for sure who is the author of Psalm 119, many, myself included, lean toward David being the author. Now, as we study this psalm, it becomes clear to us that this was not written in one setting. Reflected in this psalm are a number of different circumstances, a number of different events. There is a wide range of emotions and experiences that are expressed. And so commentator David Guzik points out that this is not a theological treatise written from the mind. This is a man's intimate meditation. He, he refers to it like a string of pearls, where each pearl is unique in beauty and yet connected together as a string. It's written in the form of a song. And what is the subject of this, the longest and most expressive chapter in the entire Bible? Well, the Bible. What we have in Psalm 119 is a love song about Scripture, a love song about the Bible. In the 176 verses of Psalm 119, the Bible is mentioned in 171 of them, over and over and over. Eight different words are used when referring to the Bible. The word law, judgments, testimonies, commands, statutes, precepts, and two different Hebrew words that we translate as law. One of them being teaching, and one of them referring to something that God has spoken. The psalmist is obsessed with the Bible, completely captured by Scripture. He extols its wisdom. He delights in its beauty. He places a higher importance on the Bible than he even does on food it's pretty clear that he has a much different relationship to Scripture than most of the rest of us do. One of the things that I find interesting about Psalm 119 is thinking about what Bible this guy was actually referring to. See, we have to remember when this was written, why it was written, and what it was written about. You see, when we use the word Bible, we are referring to this collection of 66 books, with 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament. We are including things like the Psalms or Proverbs. Our Bible includes the stories of Jesus. It includes the letters written to the churches in the New Testament. It includes the history of the nation of Israel. But when this Psalm was written... All they had was the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, when the psalmist is extolling the beauty of the Bible, he is specifically talking about the beauty of those five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That makes this even harder to identify with. Raise your hand, just by survey here, raise your hand if you think Leviticus is the most beautiful thing you have ever read. Yeah, me neither. I don't believe that, just being honest. But the psalmist sees it differently. And when we think about that, it seems ridiculous to read some of the things that this guy says about the law. How silly does it seem to say things like, he says in verse 20, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Anybody ever felt that way about rules? My soul is consumed with longing for rules. (laughs) Hardly. How about, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 47. Or, when I think of your words of old, I take comfort. Verse 54. Or verse 77, your law is my delight. Verse 97, oh how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 127, I love your commandments above fine gold. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Honestly, has anyone ever felt that about the law? Or or how about this? Look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. The same is reflected in verse 72, where he says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you rather have? All the money in the world or a copy of the Bible. Now, don't you dare say the Bible, you bunch of liars, okay? Because we all know what all of our answer would be. All of the money in the world. But the psalmist says the opposite. The psalmist says, I would rather have this than all of the gold in the entire world. So, that brings up a question. Could we ever have the same view of the Bible as Him? Could we ever be captured by Scripture the way that He was? I would say the answer is yes. But in order to get there, we need a guide. So, here's point number one. Beauty is found... In seeing something the right way. Beauty is found in seeing something the right way. Now, sometimes things can be very obvious. You walk outside and you see a sunset and it's very, very clear. That is beautiful. But other times you fail to see that something is beautiful simply because you're looking at it with the wrong perspective. Or maybe you're seeing it from the wrong angle. Sometimes someone has to bring you to a certain point of sight and point something out to you, and then your mind is blown. So, 
Let's take some examples from the art world. A modern artist named Michael Murphy uses a practice in his work called anamorphosis. And, and this is a distortion in projection or a distortion in perspective that requires the viewer to see the artwork from a certain angle in order to reconstitute the image. So, I'll show you. Here's what I mean. Josh, if you want to put up the first one. Uh, this is a project called Perceptual Shift. Okay? Perceptual Shift. Um, is my mic still on? Okay. Um, his team took 1,252 wooden balls and took them with rope and hung them from the ceiling. So, if you are standing on the left side of his project, looking directly at it, this is what it looks like. Now, of course, this does not look that awesome. It looks like a bunch of wooden balls hanging from the ceiling. I would shrug and say, must be one of those, uh, what do you call it? Um, abstract, yes. Must be abstract art. Now, abstract art has its place for some people. I'm not a fan, but to each their own. However, if you stand, instead of from the left side, if you move to the front of the room, this project looks like this. Way more awesome, is it not? Here we see that that distorted image from the right view actually is an eye. It's, it's teaching a message about perspective. Let's take another example, this time from uh, a guy named Marco Cianfinelli. I cannot be pronouncing his name correctly, but whatever. So this is a massive undertaking by Marco Cianfinelli. Okay, again, looking at this, it doesn't seem like that cool of a thing. We have 50 pieces of metal that are about 30 feet high, and these 50 pieces of metal celebrate 50-year anniversary of the capture of Nelson Mandela. Uh, I know it doesn't look like much from this angle, but if someone grabbed you and said, hey, buddy, you're standing in the wrong spot. Come here, let me show you where to stand. You would see this. Much different. Now, you see a portrait of Nelson Mandela. It's all about where you are standing. It's all about perspective. And if you don't have someone to show you where to stand, you will not see beauty. All you will see is nonsense. I'll show you one more. This last one absolutely blows my mind. This one has nothing to do with where you're standing. This one is more about sort of a key that unlocks something visually. So, uh, look at this first image, which I have very skillfully doctored. Right? So, you wouldn't know that this picture is doctored if I hadn't told you, right? Because I've so skillfully doctored it. Uh, this is from a South African artist named Jonty Hurwitz. Now, Jonty Hurwitz has his own form of anamorphic art, but for his artwork, it's not about standing in the right place. It's more about placing something next to that artwork that makes it appear quite differently. Uh, that 
piece that is missing is a cylindrical mirror. Now, before we go to the next picture, are there any guesses as to what this thing might be? A leaf? Anyone else? A bird? A dog? A dog? Okay, all good guesses. The point is, no idea, right? Truly, all we have is a guess. But when you take a cylindrical mirror and place it in front of this, this is what you get. It's a frog. With a cylindrical mirror placed in front of this sculpture, that weird distorted shape turns into a frog. That blows my mind. These artists are nothing short of geniuses. What they're creating is breathtaking and beautiful. And you could spend hours looking at every single detail in awe of how they crafted that the way that they did to make it as beautiful as it is. And every single one of those details is beautiful in its own right. Now, I would submit to you that there's a lot about Scripture that compares to anamorphic art. Just because it's not your typical obvious painting in some places that's beautiful at first glance doesn't make it any less beautiful. In fact, just the opposite. The artwork that we just looked at blows our minds even more because the beauty is hidden until we see it from the right perspective. To see the beauty of Scripture from the right perspective, we have to ask the Lord to show it to us. Look at verse 18. Verse 18, the psalmist says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Remember that this is a person who quite likely has the entire Torah memorized, word for word. First five books of the Old Testament memorized word for word. He knows it by heart. And yet he is asking that God will show it to him from the proper angle. That God will show it to him from the proper perspective. He's saying, God, please give me spiritual eyes to see the beauty that is here. Will you show me the things that I cannot see? Will you give me a supernatural ability to see wondrous things out of your law? This is echoed again in verse 27, where he says, Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. He says, make me understand, because I don't understand in and of myself. I don't see it right out. I, I'm looking at it, and maybe I'm standing at the wrong angle. God, I need you to give me understanding. Give me a supernatural understanding. Look at verse 34, where he says again, Give me understanding that I may keep your law, and observe it with my whole heart. Give me understanding. The, the psalmist understands that if he does not ask God to give him the right perspective, he is going to miss what is here. He's going to open the word, and it's going to be like John T. Hurwitz's frog, just without the cylindrical mirror. 
He's going to see something that's there that's fashioned, and he may have some appreciation for it. And he might be able to venture some guesses as to what it might be. But the psalmist says, God, put that mirror. Put that mirror in front of your words so that I can see your beauty in its reflection. And that's a thought that we'll expand on in just a moment. But perhaps let's take an example, shall we? Let's, let's look at one of those places of Scripture that can be easily viewed as being distorted. That when we look at it from the standard angle, it sort of looks like nonsense. One of these things without the missing piece that we're looking at and we're like, I don't know what this means. Why is this even in here? Let's look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 19. Okay, Remembering that this is included... In the list of places that the psalmist says, I am blown away by the beauty of your law. Leviticus 19.19 says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different breed. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Doesn't that bless you? You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Raise your hand if you are currently guilty of breaking this law. Every single one of us are wearing clothes made of different kinds of material. I think this is like 72% polyester and some cotton and filled with awesome, right? What on earth are we looking at? This is one of the many laws in the Torah. Now, there are certain laws in the Torah that are very straightforward, very easy to understand. Laws like, thou shalt not kill. Okay, that one seems pretty obvious. I can take that one at face value and say, all right, thou shalt not kill makes perfect sense. But when we come to a law like this in Leviticus 19.19, it doesn't make any sense. Why would God command such a strange thing? Furthermore, it's surrounded by other laws that have to do with sexual propriety. Most of the time, when laws like this get brought up, um, it's only in one context. It's people who are saying, you Christians are such cherry pickers. You don't even follow your own Bible. After all, you want to follow certain laws in Leviticus, but not others. You're okay with wearing clothes made of different threads. You shave your beards. You eat your steak medium rare. Well then, how about you follow them all or don't follow any of them? You bunch of hypocrites. So how do we understand a verse like this? What's the point? And my goodness, where is the beauty in a verse like this? Very briefly, and I mean very briefly because months could be spent on this part of the answer. The Old Testament contains three types of laws. There are ceremonial laws, there are civil laws, and there are moral laws. Ceremonial laws pertain to tabernacle and temple worship. The system of worship in the Old Testament uh, with the sacrifices of animals. The civil laws pertain to the government of ancient Israel. And the moral laws are laws that apply to humans universally everywhere. Under the New Covenant, ceremonial laws are no longer applicable because we no longer worship in the temple system. 
As 21st century Americans, the civil laws pertaining to the governing of ancient Israel don't apply to us. But moral laws never change, since they apply to all people everywhere. I wish I could spend more time on that idea, but for the sake of time, I have to move on. If you would like to discuss that idea more, come talk to me afterwards. But that still leaves us with pretty important questions, like why would God feel the need to command things like this? And how is a command like this beautiful? It seems completely random, completely unnecessary. But it's because we are missing the cylindrical mirror. It's because we're standing at the wrong angle. We have to put ourselves in the angle of the Israelites. See, the Israelites were surrounded by pagan nations who wanted not only to destroy them, but also stood directly opposed to their worship of the one true God. And, and God understood human nature. He understood the temptation to get wrapped up in the things around us. So, he commanded the people not to intermarry with the surrounding nations. Because to do so in that culture was not only to marry into a family, it was also to adopt their practices and their beliefs. And if they did that, it would only be a matter of time before they fall away. Take the story of Samson. For example, Samson in the book of Judges, this incredibly powerful warrior that God gives supernatural strength to be a mighty defender of Israel. But what was Samson's downfall? What was his weakness? It was lust. It was a beautiful woman. That was his Achilles heel. He was captured by lust. He was drawn in by this Philistine prostitute who smooths smooth talks him and seduces him into giving up his power. He's defeated. So, God commands the Israelites to be on guard against the temptation to let the outside come in and influence them like that. He says, be careful in your dealings with the surrounding nations that it doesn't lead you into sin. You can interact with them, but don't mix with them. The, the New Testament way of putting this is to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in it, but not of it. And so, Leviticus 19.19 for the Israelites became a daily object lesson. That would be a tangible reminder for the people. Instead of making their clothing out of mixed fibers, which would have been easier... Every single time they sat down to make a tunic out of just one type of fiber, it would remind them. And they would think to themselves, just as I can only use one fiber in making this tunic, I need to be mindful about being pure in my life. I need to make sure that I can't mix with the sin around me. Every time they would plant their fields and sow their seeds separately and keep those crops separate from each other, they would be reminded as they're planting I'm called to be unique. I'm called to be holy. I'm called to be undefiled. It was an object lesson. It was tangible. It was something for them to hold on to and see with their eyes. These laws in this chapter are not arbitrary. God's not, he's, just, he's not just making them up just because. It's, it's almost like God is putting sticky notes all over their lives so that every time they turn around, there's something to remind them. These little things that don't make sense to us are sticky notes to them saying, 
Remember to be pure. Remember to be undefiled. Remember to be in the world, but not of it. Lest they forget about the truth. And when they would think about these reminders, in a deeper sense, they're reminded of something even greater. How these laws reflect the beauty of God. It was a reminder to them to think about the fact that God is pure. God is undefiled. God is not like sinful man. He is beautiful. He is without blemish. And so a command to sow only one type of seed or to wear clothing made of only one type of thread is a beautiful reminder of a God who is beautiful and invites us to reflect His beauty. It reminds us that God doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us in our helpless state. He gives us Himself and invites us to be holy as I am holy. You see, it is truly all about where you are standing to see the beauty of something. We must ask God to open our eyes to see the wondrous things in His law. The second point is something that I've already mentioned. Point number two. The law is beautiful because it reflects the beauty of God. The law is beautiful because it reflects the beauty of God. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 10. He says, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. You see that connection that that he so obviously made? He says, with my whole heart I seek God, so let me not wander from your commandments. I seek you, now let me not wander from your commandments. In other words, he is saying that the commandments of God are the vehicle that carry him to the heart of God. The commandments of God are the vehicle that carries him to the heart of God. We cannot seek God apart from his word. Cannot do it. We cannot seek God apart from the truth that he has given us. Apart from his truth, all we will do is invent our own notions of what we think is beautiful. And those things will not reflect him. They will just reflect us. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, blessed are you, O Lord. Now, teach me your statutes. Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statutes. He is asking God to teach him those statutes because those things show him how blessed the Lord is. Isn't this even true of the artwork that we looked at just a few minutes ago? After all, imagine for a moment that you walked into the gallery where Michael Murphy's perceptual shift piece was on display. Imagine that you walked into that gallery and, and the first thing you see is this display from the wrong angle. And you skeptically think to yourself, as I would, what the heck is that? Doesn't seem like art to me. But then, you keep walking. And you happen to walk past it from the correct angle. And you do a double take. And you're like, wait, whoa, what is that? You're going to stand there, and you're going to move, and you're going to move back and forth, and you'll be like, oh, this is so trippy. This is cool. Man, this is genius. And then your next thought is going to be what? 
who came up with this? This is amazing. Whoever came up with this is a genius. Then imagine that Michael Murphy, the artist, walked in. And someone said, oh, that's Michael Murphy. That's the guy that came up with this. What would you do? You'd run up to this guy and you'd shake his hand and you'd say, oh, Mr. Murphy, I just want to tell you, what you created here is amazing. Mind blown. How did you come up with this, man? Same thing would be true with the other two guys, Michael or uh, Marco Cianfinelli or John T. Hurwitz. You'd, you'd start asking him, how did you come up with this idea? How did you learn this? How, how did you even think about this? This is amazing. You are so amazing. You see, the beauty of the artwork would lead you to speak praise to the artist who created it. This is how the psalmist can say in verses 15 and 16, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. It's so beautiful that I, I just have to sit here and marinate in it. I can't look away. I can't forget this. I, I'm so delighted that I can't walk away from this. Because it's a window into how incredible you are, God. And this is what we need, ladies and gentlemen, more than anything else. This is what we need more than anything else in the world. The beauty of God reflected through the beauty of His Word. And we need this more than once a week. Or a couple of times a week. We need this every day. In fact, every moment of every day. We have to fix our eyes on it. Here's your final point, point number three. Without a steady diet of beauty, without a steady diet of beauty, we will be dulled by the mundane. To revisit some of those deconstruction stories from the beginning and John Cooper's words, none of those people gave up on Christianity overnight. It's not how it works. It's, it's not as if they just woke up one morning after having followed this faith for most or all of their lives and just shrugged and said, you know what, time for something different. I want to be an atheist. But that's not what happened. No, every single one of these people had a very gradual fade. Every one of their stories is different and unique. But one thing that every one of those stories had in common was that the Bible was no longer beautiful to them. In some senses, they failed to see the Bible from the right angle, and no one showed them how to see it. In other senses, they immersed themselves in worldly things and found worldly things more beautiful as they mixed together fabrics of different kinds, so to speak. Their faith was eventually choked out. But for every single one of them, the Bible became less and less what directed them. Now, let me say that I am in no way, shape, or form advocating a blind faith. 
I am not now or ever saying that we shouldn't ask questions or express doubts or explore these things that we wrestle with. Remember, Marty Sampson said, I want genuine truth, not just the I believe it kind of truth. And that is a good and valid thing to want. Something that I want for myself and that I want for you. I completely support asking the hard questions. Exploring doubts instead of burying them and pretending that they aren't there. That, after all, is one of the most important aspects of the church. This should be the place where you can grab someone and say, I need to talk about something. I'm wrestling with this. I'm doubting this. I don't understand this. Can you maybe help me see this from the right perspective? That's what the church is for. In in Marty's deconstruction announcement, he brought up five different objections. He brought up preachers falling into sin. He brought up a lack of miracles, contradictions in the Bible, the doctrine of hell, and the judgmentalism of Christians. And after every one of those, he said, no one talks about it. John Cooper, the skillet singer, was right in his response when he said, dude, the church has been wrestling with these things for 1,500 years. You're not that special. You see, the problem wasn't that no one was talking about those things. That wasn't the problem. The problem for Marty Sampson is that he was not talking about those things with anyone else. He was keeping those things to himself. He was wrestling with those doubts and fears and not doing anything about it except burying them and then getting up on stage and singing, All I need is you, Lord. All I need is you. Sadly, he never took someone aside and said, I need to talk about this. Because those things then began to fester and became a cancer that ate away at his faith. So don't let that be you. Ever. The church is a place where you can explore those things in community. And I will be the first to raise my hand and say, please, for the love of God, come and talk to me. Because I am willing to explore those places of doubt with you. At the same time, I want to implore you not to make the mistake of treating the Bible like an occasional part of your life. If you do that, you may not fade completely away from the faith, but you won't be anchored the way that you need to be. You won't be tethered to the beautiful word the way that you are. In John Cooper's words, let us hold ever tighter to the anchor of the word of God. Look at verse 15 where he says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your word. Meditating is not just reading. Meditating is considering. It's mulling over something. It's chewing on it. It's, it's exploring the depths of it in your mind. It's, it's praying over it. It's asking for understanding. Asking good interpretive questions about the passage. Meditating on the scriptures means allowing it to directly address your life. My friend Trevor Atwood puts it this way. You do not read the Bible. The Bible reads you. Letting the Bible read you means opening yourself up to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
It means allowing him, or, or rather asking him, to challenge you with the things that you read. The psalmist says his eyes are fixed, fixed on God's word. This is not an occasional visit. This is his compass. Think about it like the North Star, Polaris. It's in the Big Dipper. Before navigation systems were invented, the North Star was used to guide people who traveled. Because of the North Star's position over the North Pole, it shows true north. Because to the naked eye, it is the only star that doesn't seem like it's moving. It is the only star that visually remains constant. And so because of that, using the North Star, you can determine always where north is. By using it in connection with other constellations, if you know what you're doing, I do not. I just read this on the internet. You can use it to determine latitude. You can use it to determine the other directions, south, east, and west. So early travelers would have their eyes fixed on Polaris. That doesn't mean that they stood there staring at the sky 24-7, never looking anywhere else. What it means is that they always kept checking themselves against it. They would travel and they'd check themselves. They would go and then they'd check themselves. Over and over and over, they would check to see that they were still where they needed to be in relation to the North Star. They remained locked on it. That is what our relationship with God's word must be. It is the true north that we constantly check ourselves against. Verse 97 says this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. All the day. Not just once a week. Not just occasionally. All the time. I'm fixed on it. I need a steady diet of the beauty of Scripture. The sad thing is most of us try to live on the Instagram Bible. Here's what I mean by the Instagram Bible, okay? I mean a pretty picture with a Bible verse. Now, we'll post that picture or we will retweet that and we'll smile and we'll move on. Here's the thing. Hear me out. I am not knocking that at all. I'm not speaking ill of that at all. Please, by all means, continue to do that. Please continue to flood social media with the Bible. It is the one thing social media needs more than anything else, okay? Instagram needs the Bible. Twitter and Facebook need more scripture verses posted. With that being said, what I'm saying about those things is that those things are snacks. They're not meals. They're snacks. Imagine... If you never ate any meals. Imagine if you never had breakfast, you never had lunch, you never had dinner. All you ever had is the occasional bite of trail mix. All you ever had is the occasional bite of a granola bar. What would happen? You would starve. Slowly you would waste away until nothing remained and you died. Now, is it because the trail mix was bad? No. Is it a problem with the granola? No. Thank God you even ate those things or else you'd have died even faster. The problem is all you had was a little bit of trail mix and a little bit of granola. 
You skipped all your meals every day. The psalmist tells us, your word is my meditation all the day. If all you ever have are occasional bites, your soul will starve. It'll go hungry and die. And I implore you to not let that happen. Eat three meals a day and have as many snacks as you can retweet. But don't forsake the time spent tethered to the beauty of God's word. I end now with John Cooper's words to us. And I urge you to personally pray this for yourself. It is time for the church to rediscover the preeminence of God's word. It is good. It is beautiful. Will you fill yourself with that beauty? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to study your word. Thank you for giving us scripture that we can have every single day, that we can carry with us, that we can read, that we can listen to, that we can immerse ourselves in and meditate upon. And God, I pray that each one of us will be captured by the beauty of the word of God. That every single day it would be our true north. That it would be what sustains us and inspires us and teaches us and leads us and guides us and keeps us anchored in the wind and the waves that threaten to tear us apart. I pray that no one here or listening to this message online would ever tell an extimony after they are deconverted. I pray that these people, and myself especially, would remain tethered to the beautiful word that you've given us. Now, Lord, for a few more moments, I pray that you would allow our hearts to worship you undistracted. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand and we will close in a final song.